Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry Three. One, two, three, Neds. Yes, so it is in our voyage through the kings and queens of England, we come to Edward III, who was born in 1312 and died in 1377. He lived for 65 years, which is not bad for one of these early kings, and he ruled from 1327 to 1377. And I've talked about in the last couple of episodes how... These three Edwards solidified the idea of England being, well, being England rather than an Anglo-Norman territory. Not least because all three of them were named Edward, which is an English name, an Anglo-Saxon name, a pre-Norman name. It goes back to Edward the Confessor. So Henry III was very much saying to the English people, I am one of you. Um, my son is one of you. We are not French. And Edward III particularly capitalised on this idea and really pushed for this idea of English nationhood, not least because it was a way of cementing himself firmly on the throne. And like so many people who, who need to make sure they've got maximum support in their own country, he played on the idea of nationalism and patriotism and particularly pushed the idea that the French were our enemies who needed to be defeated as a way of, of unifying the country, mainly so that he could squeeze more money out of the people. But he's one of the kings who was actually celebrated in his own life, despite the fact that things kind of went off a bit towards the end. And for hundreds of years, he was considered one of our great monarchs. And he particularly fitted the idea of what made a monarch great in that he was a, a warlike leader and he led the country to some famous victories. After he came to the throne in 1327, the representatives of the counties, the Knights of the Shire as they were known, and of the towns, Burgesses, became a permanent part of Parliament. 
From 1332, they sat together in one chamber and were known as the House of Commons. And after 1341, these commons met separately from the king and his nobles. And he pushed through a lot of reforms, a lot of new legislation. He also created some new elites. He came up with the idea of making people dukes, which was like a new top tier above earls, but also to reward those who are close supporters of his reign. And he also introduced the Knights of the Garter, another elite that's sort of 24 extra special knights who he can both reward and use uh, for his own protection in many ways. It was under Edward that we had our first parliament held in English in 1363. And this was not permanent. Not all of the parliaments after that were always held in English, but it was certainly a significant development. And the English language was encouraged. This was a time when quite a lot of important medieval writers came to the fore, uh, like William Langland, the author of Piers Plowman, and Geoffrey Chaucer, who worked in King Edward's court. And Edward's reign was marked by two pretty significant and momentous events which uh, shadowed history for a long time afterwards. So stay tuned if you want to know what they were. So we saw in the last episode what happened to poor old Edward II, who was largely betrayed by his own wife, Isabella of France, the daughter of the French king. This was following the episode when Edward II was ordered by the French king to pay homage for the territory of Aquitaine. So it's a slightly sort of humiliating thing where he has to go and kneel before the French king and say, yes, you are my king here in France and I will pay you this money. So Edward II sent his son instead to do this for him. His son being the future Edward III, young Prince Edward, who was sent in his father's place as a 13-year-old to pay the homage. And Isabella, Prince Edward's mother, went with him. And it was while she was in Paris that she started an affair with this powerful baron, Roger Mortimer. And she started to plot against her own husband with Roger Mortimer to put Prince Edward on the throne prematurely, as it were. So they come back from France and Isabella declares war on her husband, King Edward II, in support of her son, Prince Edward, saying Edward II is a rotten king and Edward III should be ruling. And the power of Isabella and Mortimer and Prince Edward combined meant that King Edward II's support immediately fell away to nothing. Everybody went over to Isabella's side. Edward agreed to be deposed and was locked up in a castle. Prince Edward takes the throne as Edward III and not long afterwards, Roger Mortimer has King Edward II murdered. So Edward is proclaimed king in 1327 in Westminster Abbey, aged only 14. And the same year, he's forced to sign a humiliating treaty with France in which the French king keeps most of the territory in Aquitaine. So the English holdings in France are greatly dwindling. So Prince Edward is crowned. He's only 14. And the country is essentially run by Roger Mortimer. And uh, Roger, like so many of these powerful, power-hungry aristocrats before him, immediately starts feathering his nest, taking more titles and land to himself, making himself fabulously wealthy. And in his eyes, really strengthening his position as ruler 
of England, which sort of works while Edward is young. But as he grows up, he starts to resent Mortimer. Mortimer, in his turn, tries to keep Edward in his place and tends to humiliate him a bit, tends to lord it over him in Parliament. And so things do not go well between the two of them. King Edward III becomes engaged to the 12-year-old Philippa of Hainault, daughter of Count William of Hainault, Hainault being a territory in the Low Countries, which tended to be called sort of Flanders back then. It, it was quite wealthy and quite powerful. So this was very much another political marriage. One of the things young King Edward does is start a campaign against the Scottish. There are still ongoing troubles with Scotland, mostly because the Scottish think of themselves as an independent country, uh, quite rightly so. But Edward is trying to finish what his grandfather, King Edward I, started of trying to hammer the Scots to take over Scotland. And young teenage Edward leads this army north. The campaign doesn't get off to a great start. Um, the English army have hired some Hainalters, uh, some sort of foreign mercenaries from Flanders to go with them. But they are set upon by English archers in the streets of York who consider them to be a foreign invasion. And so there's a sort of battle in York which results in the Hainalters setting fire to parts of the city. And the invasion doesn't get much better after that. The Scots invade the north of England, defeat the English army at the Battle of Stanhope Park. Edward tries to then re-engage them, but they just uh, sort of melt away and the whole campaign comes to nothing. King Edward's later campaigns tended to go a bit better, especially in France. But now, I'm afraid to have to tell you, another Edward enters the story. Because in 1330, Edward and Philippa have a son and decide to call him Edward. Yeah, thanks for that. He was known at the time as Edward of Woodstock, but luckily for me and for you, in terms of trying to keep this clear, later historians gave him a distinctive nickname so that he's now generally known as the Black Prince. And we'll be coming to him later as he was a very important figure in the wars with France. Uh, but this changes Mortimer's position because now King Edward and Philippa, they have a strong heir to the throne. So if Mortimer had any ideas of perhaps trying to fully usurp Edward, this becomes more tricky for him. Finally, Edward has had enough. And during a council in Nottingham, while he's staying at Nottingham Castle with Roger Mortimer and his mother, he finds that there are these secret tunnels beneath the castle that can be entered via a cave. And he lets in some knights who help him to overpower Roger Mortimer's guard and arrest him, despite Edward's mother's pleas of uh, Belle Fitz, Belle Fitz, I a pitié du gentil Mortimer, which means fair son, fair son, have pity on the gentle Mortimer. But Edward didn't have any pity on his mother's lover. Mortimer was taken to the Tower of London. He was condemned without trial and hanged at Tyburn in 1330. Edward took over his vast and wealthy estates and his body hung at the gallows for two days and nights in full view of the populace. So Edward is now firmly on the throne. He has shown his mother that he is a tough guy in his own right. 
and puts her out of the way so that she can't interfere anymore. And he's now very firmly on the throne, but he's having to keep the people happy. He's having to keep his lords happy. There are a number of English lords known as the disinherited who have lost lands in Scotland and want Edward to do something about it. They independently invade Scotland. They beat the Scottish army at the Battle of Dublin Moor. And a guy called Edward Balliol is put on the throne and declared King of Scotland. And this leads to a, a long period of back and forth between the English and the Scots, where the local Scots support their own deposed King David and are constantly fighting to put him back on the throne. So there are periods when the Scots are in the ascendancy and there are periods when the English are in the ascendancy. And it goes backwards and forwards uh, until 1337, where Philip VI of France completely confiscates Aquitaine and also Ponthieu, which is the two key holdings that King Edward has in France. Edward refuses to pay homage to King Philip and instead declares himself the rightful King of France via his mother, who was the daughter of King Philip IV. Now, the French have insisted on going down the male line and ignoring the female line. And they say, I'm sorry, but Philip VI is on the throne. And Edward says, well, in that case, I'm going to go to war with you. So this means he has to sort of not be at war with Scotland at the same time. Scotland and France are traditionally um, allies of each other against the English, and he really doesn't want to have a war on two fronts. So he makes a truce with the Scottish, but declares war on the French. And this is one of our famous wars in history. Right, gather around, chaps. Uh, got an important announcement. We're going to have another war. Will it all be over by Christmas, sir? Well, probably not, Sergeant Major. It might be a bit longer. H how much longer, sir? Well, we're thinking of calling it the Hundred Years' War, so there's a bit of a clue in the title. Hundred Years, sir? Yes, give or take a few years. So that's how the Hundred Years' War starts. Edward can't really have expected that he would be accepted as the King of France. And he knew that he couldn't really fully take on the French, take over Paris, subdue the whole of France. What he was mainly after, I think, was to get back all the territories that he'd lost in France. And that if he could at least make some headway against the French, he might be able to force them to come to a more favourable treaty. And he could regain Aquitaine and Gascony, Brittany, Anjou, Normandy these holdings in the west of France. And it is also a good way of stirring up the English people against the French. Now, the French had been carrying out raids on the British coast and the royals had been constantly whipping up fears of a full-scale French invasion. And Edward I had started putting about this myth that uh, the, the French wanted to completely destroy the English language and get rid of it. Um, which is one of the reasons Edward starts to promote the English language. I mean, there are so many parallels here between England and France and England and the European Union. This idea that there is this entity across the channel that is plotting against us and wants to take away our sovereignty. And therefore, the best thing is to go to war against them. 
So Edward agrees a truce with the Scots, allows David back onto the throne, which leaves him clear to attack France. First of all, he tries to build alliances with some other continental rulers, such as the Holy Roman Emperor and some of the discontented French lords. But not much happens in these early stages of the war, apart from a decisive victory at a naval battle in the Channel, the Battle of Sluis in 1340, where Edward destroys the French navy. But all of this is costing Edward money. He's having to maintain the troops in France. Um, he's having to, to put an army together. Parliament is constantly on his back, not wanting to be taxed, not wanting him to keep telling them what he's doing. Uh, they want to have more of a say in it. And he returns from France and does a bit of an Elon Musk he cleans out what he sees as dead wood in the corporation. He sacks a load of the barons at court, replaces them with new young people who are more on his side. But he still has to agree to certain restrictions on his powers in return for the taxes he needs to promote this war. Um, he eventually gives up on, on this sort of half-hearted alliance that he's made because it's too expensive and there are no results, and instead takes an army of about 15,000 men into France and starts marauding through the French countryside in an attempt to bring the French king to battle, which eventually the French do at a place called Cressy. And the English army under Edward used tactics that they've sort of honed against the Scots and have used to great effect in these couple of battles that they've defeated the Scots at Dublin Moor and Halidon Hill. The English army has three divisions of men-at-arms on foot, led by the King, his son, the Prince of Wales, the Black Prince, and by the Earl of Northampton. And they are flanked by two wings of longbowmen, which are the sort of Secret weapon, nuclear weapon, the ultimate weapon of the Middle Ages. Immensely powerful, these great long bows, and they, they require huge strength to pull, and they require years of training to be able to be used well. But Edward has put that into effect. He has banned a lot of games and sports and pastimes to ensure that the young men of England, instead of playing football and cricket and hockey, which they did at the time, are instead practicing the longbow. And this is a technique that they've learnt from the Welsh, and there are a lot of Welsh in the army. In contrast, the French don't allow their peasants to do any kind of military training at all, in case they might rise up against their masters. So you've got an untrained French army of foot soldiers, and they rely rather sort of arrogantly on their, their mounted knights, who are the sort of la creme de la creme. They're well-trained knights, constantly fighting in tournaments and jousts. Um, but it does not go the French way. The French army, their knights and their foot soldiers are bombarded with these arrows. The arrows rain down on the French uh, and they are completely cut to pieces. The English also use cannons in this battle. It's the first time that cannons, I think, are recorded as being used in a pitched battle. And the British win a great victory. The French army is destroyed. Many of their knights, many of their aristocracy are slaughtered, which is not considered the done thing. But Edward is going in for total war. He wants to totally destroy the French. 
The French are completely demoralized by this, and Edward gets a bad reputation for this. It's at this point that King David of Scotland, partly to help ease the pressure on his old allies, the French, invades the north of England, ignoring the treaty he signed with Edward. His assumption is that whilst the bulk of the English army was in France, England would be undefended. But he is comprehensively defeated at the Battle of Neville's Cross and actually captured. He spent years in captivity and was eventually freed in exchange for a massive ransom that the Scots couldn't really afford to pay. But his actions actually played into Edward's hands. Now that he didn't have to worry about the Scots anymore, he could reinforce his army in France and he takes a huge amount of men across the Channel to lay siege to the town of Calais with an army of about 32,000 men in France now. The reason he wants to take the city of Calais is that he needs a foothold in northern France to make it much easier for him to safely get ships and troops and supplies across the Channel. And so he besieges Calais from 1346 through into 1347. And while he's there, there are these two sort of um, great romantic stories from English history that, that arise out of the siege of Calais. One is that while he's there, he sets up a whole English court. He builds these buildings around Calais. He imports all the sort of lords and ladies from England. They have lots of feasts and balls and uh, jousting. And at one of these balls, while the knights and the ladies are dancing, Joan of Kent, who Edward sort of had his eye on, he was faithful to his wife pretty much most of her life. They did have a close marriage. Towards the end, when she got sick, he did start sniffing around some other ladies, shall we say. And he was particularly fond at this period of um, Joan of Kent. And the story goes that while Joan is dancing, one of her garters slips off and falls around her ankle, her garter being a stocking garter to keep her stockings up. So there's a certain sort of erotic side to this story. But Joan is humiliated, but Edward gallantly steps forward, takes the garter and ties it around his own knee. And he comes out with this line, On y soit qui mal y pense, which means shame on him who thinks badly of this. And on the back of this, he sets up this chivalrous order of knights, the Knights of the Garter, the Order of the Garter. And Edward III had always been going on about how he was going to found a new round table, a new order of um, Arthurian chivalry. But it was considered possibly quite a costly undertaking. And also following his total war tactics at the Battle of Cressy, any pretense that he was following chivalric traditions had gone out of the window. So instead, he sets up the Order of the Garter. It is also a way of creating this elite around himself, this tight-knit group who are close to the king. But, uh, you know, if you, if you look at history and you look at these stories, sadly, like many of these colourful stories, they appear to be complete bollocks. So at the time, in the late 1340s, uh, women didn't wear garters around their stockings. Uh, there is no actual contemporary reference to this incident. And it's thought now that the garter was actually based on a sword belt. And this, this story only started doing the rounds two or three hundred years after these events. And that actually the line, on Iswaki Mali Ponce, shame on him who thinks badly of this, was actually a motto that 
Edward adopted. And the idea was it was about his campaign in France and his idea that he should be king of France. And it was shame on you who thinks badly on this, uh, this concept of mine that I should be king of France. But it is still on the royal coat of arms. It is round a belt, which certainly is more of a sword belt than a garter. The other motto on the royal coat of arms is another French phrase, Dieu et mon droit, God and my right, which again is slightly disputed as to exactly what it means. Sounds good, but what does it mean? And that one was, of course, as we heard in an earlier episode, that was adopted by Richard I, Richard the Lionheart. So we've got all these French mottos on our English coat of arms. The other great romantic story that comes out of the Siege of Calais is this incident where the people of the city are starving and their officials, their burghers, send a letter to the King of France saying, please come and help us. We've eaten our horses, our dogs, our cats, our rats. If you don't come soon, we shall have to start eating each other. But the French king, following the defeat at Cressy, is very wary of taking on the English. The English have shown themselves to actually be a pretty tough army of nasty but effective warriors. Uh, and so the French army is not going near them. The burghers are starving and King Edward says, All right, I will spare the people of Calais, but you must send me six of your top men, your burghers. Send me your chief six and I will execute them in their stead and spare the people of Calais, uh, but we will take over the town. And so these six local men come out, chained together, wearing rags, completely starving. And Queen Philippa, who was pregnant at the time, says, you must spare their lives, Edward. And Edward did. And this story is, is a verified fact immortalised by Rodin's famous statue, the Burgers of Calais, that stands outside the town hall there. So yes, Edward spared the lives of the six burghers and everyone else in Calais, but he was still pretty harsh on them. He expelled most of the population and brought over an English population to um, take over the town, very much as King Edward I had done in his campaigns in Northern Wales, where he'd built these new towns like Anglesey and imported the English. And so having taken over Calais, which the English managed to hold, despite losing most of the rest of their holdings in France, which happens over and over again, they do hold Calais for about 200 years. So Edward returns to England in triumph. 1348. And there are huge celebrations. He has done what a king is supposed to do. He has defeated his enemy in battle and he has done it magnificently. And he's done it twice. He's done it against the Scots in Northern England and he's done it against the French at Cressy. And he is celebrated as one of the greatest kings of all time. And there are feasts and parties and balls and jousting. And, and England is in a pretty good place at this time. Edward, through his campaigns in France, has managed to plunder quite a lot of wealth. Things are stable at home. He's able to keep taxation high. The wool trade is roaring. It is this uh, the powerhouse of the economy. England is in a very strong position, which it hasn't been for a long time. So all is going magnificently until this trading ship puts in at the port of Malcolm is now called Weymouth, 
in Dorset. Um, it was no doubt bringing wine over and probably some woven wool because wool tended to mostly be exported in, as a raw material and then the great weavers of Flanders and France would turn it into garments. So there would be woolen garments and wine on this ship and it puts in at Malcolm Harbour. But there is a stowaway on the ship. In fact, there were many stowaways on the ship because it is infested with rats. It's very hard to keep rats off a boat, even if you've got a ship's cat, because down in the bowels of the ship, there would be so many places that rats could hide. And so they were impossible to get rid of. So there were many rats on the ship as stowaways. But the rats themselves had stowaways in the form of fleas, which infested these rats and were biting them a lot and were biting the poor sailors on the ships. Um, and in fact, some of the rats on the ship had become unnaturally aggressive. So it wouldn't have been a very pleasant voyage. But the fleas also had stowaways in the form of bacteria, Yersinia pestis. The fleas were rife with it. And when the ship docked, the sailors came ashore. By this time, at least one of the sailors had been bitten by a flea and the bacteria had passed from the flea into the sailor. But also the rats came down the ship's ropes that moored it to the harbour and entered the town and ran up into the houses, up into the thatched roofs and ran across the rafters and the fleas would hop down from the rats onto the people sleeping below. And the woolen cloth would also have been infested with fleas. So pretty soon the bacteria, Yersinia pestis, had spread through Malcolm. And it being a big trading town, there were merchants from, from all around southern England here. And they went away and they took the bacteria with them, which, you know, wouldn't have gone down in history, except for the fact that the Yersinia pestis bacteria causes this disease, which we now call the Black Death. Now, this was not a term that was used until the 17th century. At the time, this disease was called the Great Mortality or the Pestilence. Technical term is the bubonic plague. And the bubonic plague spread incredibly quickly through southern England, from Weymouth to Bristol, another big trading centre. Uh, by autumn, it had reached London. And by the summer of the following year, it covered the entire country. It took only 500 days to basically infect the whole of England. It died down by December of that year, by which point there was somewhere between 40 to 60% mortality. They now reckon it was possibly half the population of England was, was wiped out. And it was the same through Europe. And in fact, in some places in Europe, it was worse. It was more like two thirds. It's called the bubonic plague because the bacteria congregates in the lymph nodes, which are under the armpits and in the groin, and they start to swell up. And there are accounts at the time that this looks like a sort of an apple pushing forward under the skin or the, the head of an onion. And these lumps are called buboes, which is where the word bubonic plague comes from. And the lumps get bigger and bigger and start to darken and go black. And then eventually bacteria kind of erupt from the lymph nodes and spreads through the blood, causing the failure of your internal organs and causing your whole body to turn black. So England at the time had somewhere between three and seven million inhabitants. 
less than the population of London today. So let's say there are about six million inhabitants, 90% of whom live in the countryside. London, as today, is massive, 70,000 inhabitants. And the poor in these big cities would have it pretty bad because they're in cramped conditions. And the peasants in the countryside had it pretty bad because their health wouldn't have always been that great to start with. And they would be cooped up, uh, squashed together, families in houses. Um, the rich were able, as ever, to avoid the worst of it. They could leave crowded London and shut themselves away on their country estates behind their castle walls and not mix with the locals too much. But it did still hit the royal household. Very much like Covid, the plague had spread and become established before anyone realised what was happening. And Edward's daughter, Joan, was travelling through France on her way to Spain, where she was going to marry Prince Pedro, the son of the Spanish king, when the plague erupted. And she was stuck there in France. Nobody really knew what was going on. And her whole party got marooned in Bordeaux. And one by one, they began to die. In the end, the whole party was wiped out. And afterwards, Edward sent a very touching letter to the King of Spain. We are sure that your magnificence knows how, after much complicated negotiation about the intended marriage of the renowned Prince Pedro, your eldest son, and our most beloved daughter Joan, which was designed to nurture perpetual peace and create an indissoluble union between our royal houses, we sent our said daughter to Bordeaux en route for your territories in Spain. But see, with what intense bitterness of heart we have to tell you this. Destructive death, who seizes young and old alike, sparing no one, snatched from both of us our dearest daughter. No fellow human being could be surprised if we were inwardly desolated by the sting of this bitter grief, for we are humans too. So the Black Death had started in the Far East and had arrived in Europe along the trade routes. And in 1343, there was a Mongol army in the Crimea who were besieging the trading colony of Kaffa. There was a three-year siege. It was extended because ships were able to get in and out of, of Kaffa across the Black Sea and keep the town supplied. But the Mongols, or the Tatars, as they were called at the time, were pretty persistent until they were struck down by bubonic plague, which, as I say, came from the east and their army was pretty much destroyed. But before they left, they catapulted rotting bodies from their army into the city, hoping to punish the people of Kaffir and stink out their streets. Nobody at the time really knew how the plague was transmitted, and there are lots of extremely colourful remedies at the time. The main idea of how disease spread was through what is known as a miasma, which is this sort of invisible gas that arises from people, which is why people used to carry nosegays, these sort of scented bundles that they would hold under their nose to prevent miasma from getting in. And you've probably seen pictures of plague doctors from later outbreaks of the plague wearing these plague masks with their long curving snouts which would be stuffed with scented herbs to keep the miasma out. Nothing really worked. You were either lucky or you had some form of basic immunity and you survived. So, as I say, so nobody in Kaffir would have known how disease was spread and the Mongols were sending these bodies over just as a, as a last 
kind of dump on the people of Kaffa before they faded away. But it was the first recorded use of biological warfare. It spread plague into the city. Some Italian merchants escaped, fled out of the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus, into the Mediterranean, back to Italy, and thus brought the plague to Europe. Society could have completely collapsed. It didn't. It was partly down to Edward III being a strong and reasonably level-headed king, holding things together. We will see how, in Richard II's reign, things do fall apart. But for now, things remain relatively stable. But there are big, big knock-on effects. Suddenly, the workforce is as much as halved, and suddenly the available marriage market is greatly reduced. So there are big changes in workers' rights and in women's rights, because the rules, and there were very strict rules at the time about who you were supposed to marry, how you were supposed to marry, how you were supposed to behave if you were widowed. So the marriage market changes and the labour market drastically changes. Now you've got a harvest coming up as a lord. You need people to work on the land who haven't got enough. You're going to have to pay the peasants from the estate next door more than the lord of the manor there is willing to pay them to come and work on your land. So suddenly the workers have power. So what happens? Of course, the aristocracy and the king decide to try and do something about it. So they bring in these two laws in 1349, the Ordinance of Labourers and the Statute of Labourers to try and control the wages of these peasants, to try and cap their wages. But you can't legislate against the law of supply and demand. So these measures were doomed to failure. And all they really did was stoke up more resentment from the peasant class towards the ruling class. And the House of Commons becomes more powerful. And as I say, the, the working men become more powerful. And actually society and the economy does bounce back reasonably well from this plague, despite the fact that the plague wasn't done with us. It would flare up and burn itself out, only to return later on. And the economy was damaged every time it came back. But amazingly, society recovered every time and was able to carry on in some ways as normal, even so far as allowing Edward to carry on with his war against France. Only seven years after the coming of the Black Death, in 1355, he sends over another army. But by this point, he's leaving a lot of things to his sons, the running of England, of government, and the running of the war. His eldest son, the Black Prince, leads the army against the French at Poitiers, which is a sort of rerun the Battle of Cressy. The French don't seem to have learned their lesson. And again, the English army slaughter the French and slaughter the French knights, and they even capture the French king, King John, and he's taken back to England, where he eventually dies in English captivity, having failed to raise enough ransom. And a lot of the uh, nobility of Europe are killed in this battle. So Edward, the Black Prince, the Prince of Wales, Edward of Woodstock, as he was actually known at the time, goes on to maraud around the countryside, and the French are pretty cowed, at which point Edward decides to enter peace negotiations with the French. This was what he wanted all along, was to get back his lands in France. He probably asked for too much. The whole of the western seaboard of France, or half of the country. So he never got everything that he wanted. 
And in fact, in the years after that, as his health declined, the French managed to claw back everything they had because with John out of the way, King Charles V took the throne in France and he was a much more dynamic king than John and he pushed back hard against the English. Edward has trouble at home. He can't get what he wants anymore. He's seen as, as being weakened. Parliament gangs up on him and his son, John of Gaunt, largely takes control of government. A lot of people are expecting that John is going to take over and become king when Edward dies. He's not the eldest son, that is Edward the Black Prince. He's the second son. But Edward the Black Prince, like so many members of the royal family leading armies at this time, catches dysentery on a campaign in Europe and dies of another exploding stomach. So that's the end of the Black Prince. So John of Gaunt sort of has a claim to the throne as the second son, and he is the Duke of Lancaster. Now, this all becomes important later on, so don't forget it, because we are looking at the origins of the Wars of the Roses, which are between two rival branches of Edward III's family. The House of Lancaster, descended from his son John of Gaunt, and the House of York, descended from his youngest son, Edmund, Duke of York. The problems all start when the Black Prince dies. As I say, Edward could have made one of his other sons his designated heir, but sticking to the strict law of primogeniture, he declares that he will skip a generation and make his grandson his heir. This is the son of the Black Prince, Richard, the future Richard II. So the last few years of Edward's reign are pretty sad. How are the mighty fallen? All of these reigns really, like the careers of prime ministers and presidents, end in a slow diminishing of powers and illness and dementia or whatever. And Edward is not immune to that. He gets sicker and sicker. In 1376, he develops a large abscess, which is not very pleasant. And then he dies of a stroke in 1377. And there ends the great Edward III, as he used to be thought of. He was a tough king. He was probably more interested in fighting wars and battles than he was in governing. But at the same time, the English Parliament did grow and develop and prosper. He was a reasonably just man. He could be harsh, but he could be forgiving. And he was certainly loved by the English at the time and for hundreds of years after. So I will leave it to you to pass the final judgment on King Edward III. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. My special guest on this episode is the historian Helen Carr, who wrote a best-selling biography of Edward's son, John of Gaunt, called The Red Prince. She also writes a regular column for the BBC History magazine and has hosted the chart-topping podcast Hidden Histories. Helen, welcome to my humble and amateurish podcast. <laughs> it's lovely as ever to have a proper historian on. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I mean, I also see that you have a book out this year, this year of recording being 2023, called This England. And I'm very intrigued by that. Are you able to tell us anything about that or is it all under wraps? No, I can absolutely tell you about it. The only really sad thing is that it's actually coming out in 2025 because um, I just haven't got around to finishing it. it. (laughs) Um, I had a baby (laughs) and that turned out to be quite a lot of work. So I I haven't um, had a chance to actually finish the book yet. So it's now delayed to 2025, um, but it is going to include a lot about Edward III, and it is a new history of the 14th century. It's the story of the last Plantagenets, but it's also a story of the nation, and it's a story of how we sort of created in the 14th century our sense of Englishness and, mm. and national identity. So there's a lot that happens in it. You know, you've got Black Death right in the middle, and Hundred Years' War. It's going to be quite exciting. Well, I wish you had written it, because I could have read it, and I could have approached <laughs> this this era of history in a more informed manner. Now, well, that sounds really interesting because I was intrigued by the sort of idea that through the three Edwards, the sort of English monarchy started, and you might disagree, started to think of themselves as English rather than Anglo-Norman, not least because they started being given English names. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think it was definitely going that way a bit before Edward I, but it certainly manifests itself around um, Edward I. And I think what's really interesting about the three Edwards is you have this sort of two Edwards, it's a little bit like a sandwich. You've got Edward I <laughs> and Edward III as these sort of pillars of English monarchy and mm. uh, you know, warlike kings. And then you've got Edward II in the middle, who's just the filler, who's just a little bit rubbish. And um, <laughs> Well, he was in that great tradition of great British failures, who we yeah. love so much. Yeah, yeah, he didn't do a great job. He wasn't much like either his father or his his son, but yes. the, the two on the other side were quite were quite similar, which is something I suppose will. Well, which leads me to this question, which is not really a sort of proper historical question, but it, it is, you know, do we think of Edward the Third as being was he a good king? So he's sort of eulogised as a good king, isn't he? He's He's been called you know, the greatest king. I think that's what Ian Mortimer called him in, in his biography that he wrote. You know, yes. these very martial kings, the kings that are the conquerors, the kings that achieve a lot in their reign, tend to be considered great and memorable. He was, I would say, quite an arrogant king. I think that he had major ambition. He had major agenda. I think he was ruthless at times, but I think he knew how to create and for he knew how to forge loyalty he was very political and he was very he was very clever in his politics and he he was very canny in being able to create a sense of national identity and nationhood and mm. brotherhood but also extend his influence and extend his interests in a very european manner so i think that he was clever but would we say he was good i think he made some good decisions but then i think he also made some pretty bad decisions and i think you know i'm a, i'm personally a pacifist so i i wouldn't <laughs> say that the hundred years war really achieved very much <laughs> so there was a lot of um brutality that that yeah. went into that which is something that I and, and a vast waste of 
of money, life and resources. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so I think, you know, he's memorable for his actions, but would we call them good in the context of the modern day? I'm not sure we would. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, alongside starting essentially the Hundred Years' War, I mean, he did do a certain amount to modernise the system of governance within England and make that a bit fairer. I think to, to understand Edward in the context of sort of goodness, um, <laughs> we have to kind of look back a little bit into the very unsuccessful reign of his father, which was completely mm. destroyed by political unrest and civil war. And it was a really politically fractious time. There was absolutely no security in the realm whatsoever. Scotland was a mess. The North of England was a mess. The North of England was practically annexed by this point, And it was just it was effectively a frontier zone to Scotland. So Edward II had really lost control over what it meant to, to be a king. He constantly had favourites that he was leaning into and he was, you know, showering them with his attention and gifts. And and it created this sense of massive instability for the country. And so what Edward III did was he stepped into the role of king and he unified the country. He made it the case that there was going to be absolutely no opportunity for this sort of noble rebellion. And I think that that was something that people wanted, they, the country needed. And I think that that instantly shaped him as being considered to be a, a good king thereafter. And he did so by, by creating things like the commons. So he reformed government. Yeah. So in 1327, he established the commons. So he made it possible that representatives of the counties and towns became a permanent fixture within parliamentary proceedings, which was something that hadn't really happened before. It's very much the lords. The lords mm. managed the country, but the lords were a mess. So nothing was really getting managed. <laughs> And he also introduced annual meetings of Parliament. So as a historian, when you're looking through all of the parliamentary records, you often have gaps because Parliament just didn't didn't take place. Whereas in the 14th century under Edward III, that's when you really do get the regular meeting of Parliament. And that's that's really helpful from the perspective of historians to understand what was going on. It did kind of turn back on him a bit later with the good Parliament in 1376 because that didn't go so well for him because the Commons impeached a number of his uh, officials. Yes. <laughs> so, no, I, I, I'm fascinated by all these parliaments and how they all got nicknames. Yeah, yeah good parliament, <laughs> the bad parliament. There's a few more. There's like the, the cruel parliament. I think yeah, I yeah. Kind of later on called the, the really bad parliament. Yes. Yeah, did anything really get achieved? Did it all get undone? Oh, no. yes. But I suppose, um, you know, talking about him as a good king, it did this allowed people more agency in the way that the country is run. And before that, people had so few outlets to express their grievances. They just had really a system of what was called petitioning, which was fairly, it was effective, but it didn't have the, the force that it would having sort of literally yeah. elected series of common um, representatives. But he seems to have been okay with the idea of formalising Parliament and allowing not just the aristocracy, but lower down the scale to have a say in what was going on. He wasn't kind of railing against it the way that some of the kings yeah. said, I am the king, I'm put here yeah. by God. Yeah. yeah. He, no, he wasn't like that at all, actually. And that's a really interesting point to be kind of, I suppose, uh, colloquial about it. He wasn't a snob. Um, <laughs> he was very much involved in in the people. He saw people as English people. He saw them as members of his realm. And these members mm. of his realm all had a part to play in his agenda and his idea of what it was to create the the realm in which he he ruled and the, and the kingdom in which he ruled. You know, so he made it possible. And he actually laid out laws to make sure that people were practicing archery and they were all kind of investing in their own country. And so I don't think that he had this sense of 
kingship in the same way as other kings had. Mm. For example, you know, Richard II definitely yes. had this, this sense of kind of elevated self. I don't think that Edward had that. He loved being a sort of uh, leader of the pack, you know, one of the lads <laughs> sort of thing. I think that was really very much his um, his MO. And he also, later in his reign, he very much leaned into the merchant classes, the emerging merchant mm. classes, particularly later on after the Black Death when they started to become very wealthy and he started um you know borrowing money and things through the merchant classes so i think that he was very happy to break the glass ceiling so to speak mm. for the echelons below yeah and, and realizing and understand it was more to being a king than just sitting on a throne and shouting at people totally yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean he, he seems to have been a pretty ruthless guy and i'm, I'm really interested in, in his treatment of his mother mm. who mm. essentially brought him to the throne and then he seemed to well I mean he certainly turned on her lover Roger Mortimer I mean was Mortimer a genuine threat to him I don't think Mortimer was ever a, a genuine threat to him I think that the revolution that had happened in the reign of his father it was highly divisive and it had alienated major magnates so it alienated powerful earls such as the Earl of Lancaster whose brother had been killed by Edward II. And, you know, you had all of this powerful nobility that had been a major problem in English politics, as I just mentioned, for mm. almost 30 years. Mm. And it was like all these favourites within the nobilities were popping up to sort of quasi-rule. And it was a bit like whack-a-mole. It was like Gaveston, <laughs> oh, Dispenser, oh, Mortimer. It's just, you know, they're just constantly popping up as, um, as to become part of this circle around the king. <laughs> and I think that Mortimer made the mistake thinking that that was something he could do with Edward III. He could be this influential figure who was going to um, coerce this young king into doing what he wanted him to do in the same manner as um, Edward II had been yeah. coerced, particularly by the dispensers. And he wasn't like that. He wasn't like his, his father. He was far more actually like his grandfather, Edward I. So I think that the downfall of Mortimer, that bloody coup that took place at Nottingham in 1330, mm. where Mortimer was captured and dragged out on a pallet and then uh, beheaded, he, um, I think that was inevitable, really. In regard to his mother, I think that in the sort of politics of this time, we see sort of snippets, of, like most women in this period, we sort of snippets of Isabella. And I think that actually she did have a role in, in bringing him to the throne. But I mean, that was going to happen anyway. I mean, I think that, you know, she probably in, in Edward's mind, what Isabella did was destabilise his throne. Right. Um, because when you overthrow a king, as they did Edward II, by deposing him, you then make the throne and the Plantagenet line, um, you take away its strength and its impenetrability. You take away his position as the future king of England as God sent, as something that's untouchable, mm -hmm. and you make him vulnerable. And so I think that he saw that, and he then had to do a lot of work in his early kingship to create a sense of, of strength and unity and prove himself as a king that was going to be um, a powerful monarch going forward. So actually, I think she she made his early reign quite unstable through her actions. And I think you see that mostly in his later reign and his marriage as well. Um, he had a good relationship with his queen, Philip of Hainalton, and she was heavily involved in his rule and his kingship. And he created a really strong, solid family. You know, the Plantagenets under Edward III were formidable. And 
that was something that you didn't see with Isabella and Mortimer. They were mm. really just feeding into this political instability that had been happening for the last 30 years. And so I I think that he cared for her in some respects. I mean, he could have sent her off to live in semi-poverty somewhere, yeah. but he didn't do that. He kept her within the household. She had apparently had a very close relationship with the Black Prince. She was given a pension. Um, but yeah, I think, could he have possibly treated his mother better? Um, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> the huge event in Edward's reign is, of course, the Black Death. Mm. Did he do the best thing or... Was he floundering like most people in an epidemic? <laughs> I think in comparison to his efficiency when it comes to beginning a war with France and being able to go and borrow money left, right and centre for his war, I think he was pretty inefficient. Right. Um, I think a lot of people were flailing around, not really knowing what to do. Um, Sounds very familiar. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> it does sound familiar, doesn't it? But yeah, I think he himself was deeply affected by it. He lost his daughter, his yes. beloved daughter, yeah. Joan, and she tragically died in the most awful, awful manner, just completely alone, absolutely terrified, the poor girl. So he was obviously affected by that, but he ran away. I mean, he, did, <laughs> he, he went and quarantined himself in Oxfordshire whilst it was going on, um, as many of the people who could did. Um, but there was an awareness that, that this was environmental. So there was obviously two schools of thought. There was this idea that it was, you know, the wrath of God, um, mm. So he did request the clergy to perform rites for the realm. So he was investing in that and this sort of um, religious aspect and the penitential aspect. But then he was also practical. He opposed the building of a plague pit, um, which was supposed to be built at East Smithfield. And he said, you know, we can't do that. That's right in the centre of of the city. We can't do that. That is like, insane. Um, so that was for some, you know, for sanitation reasons. So there was some practical elements and, you know, he did, he did invest in the sanitation of the city, um, creating drains and drainage systems, mm. things like that. And was there any form of a lockdown or a sort of restricting movement of peoples? And Yes, there was. So people were forbidden to go on pilgrimage at that point. You right. weren't able to leave the country. Um, so the pil any sort of pilgrimage was um, petitions were, were turned down, so people weren't allowed to travel. So yes, there was a lockdown you know, as effectively as that could be. And you know, when people were dying within homes, the homes would be would be sealed off, and people wouldn't be able to move around. Yeah. And, and, and did we bounce back? We, I wasn't there. Did England bounce back uh, well, I mean, fairly as, quickly? As fast as you could when you lose fifty plus percent of the population. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, that statistic in itself is is murky because that's only really um, taken from the records of the number of clergymen who were lost oh, because right. that was the only way of recording, you know, the clergymen sort of moving around the country as they came into different parishes. That's the only way of recording how many clergymen were lost. And so there's more of a kind of general oh, um, yeah. and also the archaeological evidence as well. So it says it's kind of a loose figure, but it could have been more than 50% of the population. Mm. That's quite vague. So did we bounce back quickly? Well, there was a real issue with workmanship. There was nobody to plough the fields. There was nobody to milk the cattle. There was just absolutely nobody to manage the sort of basic agriculture of sustaining a, a realm of society. Mm. So that's when you had... Um, the ordinance of labourers come in because people who'd had survived it, who were able, 
were demanding more wages. And then you had the merchants or the um, landowning classes saying, well, I can't pay you more. You know, this is this is ridiculous what you're demanding to do the work that we need, but they didn't have any choice. So that's when in 1351, they um, they created the Statute of Labourers, which capped, you know, they had wage caps and things like that. But they also threw in some things for fun, like sumptuary laws, like you're not allowed to wear purple. And things like that <laughs> because people were beginning to dress quote unquote, above their station. Um, So that sort of got all of the nobility sort of up in arms. But I mean, in some ways, did that sort of revitalise the economy in terms of slightly modernising it? I mean, throughout the 14th century, there were sort of economic fluctuations. Mm. So you had the Great Famine, which in some people's minds was sort of almost worse than the Black Death. Um, that people don't really talk about because the Black Death took precedence in the 14th century over the famine, which was 1314 sort of time. so that was when the realm was particularly poor um, because of a series of famines, basically, because of poor weather. But um, I think it it was certainly in a better state after the Black Death than it was after the famine. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Helen, and good luck with finishing your book. Yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, well, you know, and you know the amount of information that you're presented with there, and and how you organise that, and what you choose to put in is, is mind-boggling, really. So, um, yeah, writing the history of a century is quite a large task. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to that coming out, and thank you so much for talking to me today, Helen. Thank you for having me. That was Helen Carr and look out for her new book on the 14th century. But you might want, in the meantime, to check out her biography of John of Gaunt, entitled The Red Prince. And John plays a big part in our next episode on the disastrous reign of Richard II, who was a sort of reboot of Edward II. And his story includes Wat Tyler and the Peasants' Revolt, the rise of the Lollards, and the arrival on the scene of Henry Bolingbroke who becomes Shakespeare's Henry IV. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.